Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the podcast because we are coming to you from New York City. Bam, 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 you can hear the hustle and bustle of Manhattan behind me. I'm down on the east side, close to the UN building, which has become really the centre of world diplomacy this week, as it does every single September. Almost the biggest political and diplomatic event of the month not even the year but just the month uh, second really only to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II a really strange situation this year where a lot of the leaders have flown directly from London after paying their respects to, to Britain's Queen at the funeral and a lot of the proceedings were actually delayed Joe Biden for example is US President traditionally is the second speech at the UN General Assembly but he delayed it by a day in order to get back from London and uh, it's really interesting I've been to one of these before but years and years ago and this year got much more the, the proper feel of things the UN just totally and utterly takes over. The traffic in Manhattan, which is never known for being good or being particularly easy to get around in the car, is absolutely mental. Took us nearly two hours to get in from JFK Airport and uh, the, the incredibly frustrated taxi driver who was on a fixed rate fare was just tapping at Google Maps when it said we only had two miles to go until the hotel uh, and yet it was going to take us 35 minutes. Took us a lot longer than that. And it's funny watching the locals get annoyed like proper New Yorker sort of annoyed because when you were walking around here obviously the police and the security presence is absolutely massive you can't go down any single road without there being these massive blacked out window SUVs that have different world leaders in them and sometimes they close off the avenues for maybe up to a half hour at a time which means you, you if you need to go across you need to get further down the city you, you just can't you have to wait and it's really funny watching the locals get more and more annoyed at the police as they're waiting and you know literal that americans new york stereotype of i'm trying to walk here i'm walking here what are you doing them going why do we have to have the un here anyway why can't they have it somewhere more rural get out of my way just like so very typical new york of being like my day and my commute to get by sandwich at lunch is much more important than the actual un being here and the reason they're meeting is why they meet every year it's the general assembly which is when all the different world leaders gather there are so many events on the side and they all give a speech what's known as a national statement a national address to the un there's actually so many leaders here that the speeches start on a tuesday and they don't finish until the following following Monday there's that many of them to get through and they're each meant to have a 15 minute slot but really some of them just go totally mad and totally overboard Zelensky addressed the UN the other day he was about 28 minutes I think Biden was somewhere around 25 26 the longest in history though was 269 minutes when Fidel Castro gave a more than four-hour address in 1960. Thankfully, no one was quite that long-winded this time, even though a few of them were uh, airing their grievances, because that's sort of what these speeches are used for. They're meant to be setting out basically a country's entire foreign policy in 15 minutes and what their priorities for the year are. And it's really interesting because they deliver it to basically a half-empty room. There's actually not that many people inside the chamber and less and less now because the COVID restrictions are still there. It's really hard to get on the UN campus, even as a journalist, and then to get from the UN campus into the actual building itself is is almost impossible. So it's quite difficult for the leaders to address a half-empty room. And what happens is that you have usually at least one person from every nation, from every country, who is in the room at the time. And they're basically taking notes. They're going, all right, OK, well, Ireland is aligned with us on this, but not on that. Uh, and those notes go into then any further engagements they might have. So if their foreign minister then meets Simon Coveney or whatever, they have a, a good idea of where Ireland stands on it. And what it's 
used for, what those speeches can be really used for is smaller countries, a bit like Ireland, but also ones that don't really get that much of a, a play on the world stage. Maybe some of the African countries, the small island nations, for example, have used their speeches in the past to really highlight climate change and what's happening to them because of rising sea levels, the food shortages around the world that are exasperated by the war in Ukraine are featuring quite heavily this year, particularly when it comes to some of those African countries who are in an awful lot of trouble. So the smaller states, countries rather, can grab the big stage when they need to. And it's a bit like political speed dating when they're off the stage. That's what has been compared to by some of the people who are with the with the T-shirt today and that they're all walking around these corridors together and people are sort of hoping to grab five minutes here with, with any particular country, usually the bigger ones. So Simon Coveney, for example, he managed to grab five minutes with Joe Biden at an event earlier on this week. I said to him that there is a, there's a country waiting for a visit um, and that he would be extraordinarily welcome uh, when he comes back home, effectively. Uh, and he said to me that he's really looking forward to that visit uh, and he hopes that it can happen soon. And that's where a lot of the business gets done, sort of in the, the corridors, on the margins, where you get to have a little chat, put forward one particular issue that you're trying to get a bit of progress on or trying to get agreement on something at the UN. And the Taoiseach speech, he, went, he did go over the 15 minutes, it has to be said. Very strong on Russia. He called Russia a rogue state, which is, uh, you know, no joke of a criticism when you're talking about one of the big beasts of the UN uh, and said really that we can't have a situation where the big countries, the big strong countries, the big armies are allowed to prey on weaker ones because, you know, now it's Ukraine, but who's to say in the future it wouldn't be the likes of an Ireland or, or another small country. And interestingly, with the, one of the strongest bits, I thought, in the Taoiseach speech was on the issue of Palestine uh, and some pretty strong criticism of Israel. Each month, Ireland, along with many of our fellow members of the Council, has reiterated our firm commitment to a two-state solution with a viable Palestinian state based on 1967 borders, living in peace and security alongside the state of Israel, with Jerusalem as the capital of both states. But we are no nearer today to that aim than we were when we joined the Council 18 months ago, and truth be told, long before that. Israeli settlement building continues to undermine, it would seem knowingly and deliberately, the viability and territorial continuity of a further Palestinian state, and to jeopardize the two-state solution. Settlements are a clear violation of international law, and today stand in the way of a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace. And the Israelis will have taken particular note of what Michal Martin had to say, relations, of course, between Ireland and Israel, not particularly good for quite a long time. But he also took aim at the UN Security Council. We've been on the UN Security Council for 18 months. We're on it till the end of the year. And Michal Martin really venting some of the frustration he had about how it works. We challenged the Council to take on its responsibilities to address the impact of climate change on international peace and security. 113 countries, 113 of the members of this assembly supported us in our efforts. One country, Russia, vetoed these efforts. It frankly beggars belief that in 2022, the UN body charged with the maintenance of peace and security has still not taken on its responsibilities in this area. It is a singular failure of political will and political responsibility. 
And the reason he's doing that is a thing called the veto that the five permanent members have. The permanent members being the UK, France, China, Russia and the United States. And they have so much more of a disproportionate power to the non-permanent members like Ireland who have to be elected on because those five countries can effectively veto anything. They can say, we no, we don't like this. Uh, and it's something that that Tishik mentioned, as you'll have heard in the clip there on climate resolutions, for example, 113 countries backing something, and then Russia just has the power as one of this like sort of privileged permanent five on the Security Council to say, actually, nope, don't like that, gone. And that proves even more problematic now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, because any action or any resolution that they might want to pass could just be vetoed by, by Russia, can't really do anything at them. The Security Council obviously took on particular importance this week. Simon Coveney said it's the most important meeting of the Security Council since Ireland became a member. But it took an extra impetus, I suppose, when midway through the summit and ahead of the meeting, Vladimir Putin took to the airways in Russia. Obviously, that sent something of a shock through the UN. And the timing was no coincidence. No one believes it's coincidental that all world leaders happen to be gathering here. And he makes this announcement. And there's sort of two views on why now and why the timing one being that he was trying to make the un look weak that they are so hamstrung by the different rules that there's not a huge amount they can do either on the security council or elsewhere but then the other side views it as really a pitch of desperation from vladimir putin one in which the russian army is completely on the back foot over the last few weeks and now it's the lashings out of a man who is in trouble and simon coveney did an interview with me this week at the council and he gave his thoughts well, I think, you know, certainly the, the reading of this from, from many is that this war has gone very badly for, uh, for Russia uh, and for, for President Putin. Uh, and, and therefore, he needs to increase the threats uh, and to escalate um, Russian deployment. Um, unfortunately, that is very bad news for everybody, uh, but in particular for, for Ukraine, because it means this this madness uh, is going to continue and to escalate. It's going to mean probably tens of thousands of more lives lost, uh, probably more brutality, more war crimes, more mass graves. Um, and, uh, you know, the international community has got to call stop. Um, and, you know, that's what people have been trying to do this week. Uh, and I think you will see very strong language tomorrow from foreign ministers and prime ministers speaking in the Security Council to give a very strong signal to Russia that they are isolated on this uh, and that continued escalation in the context of what was uh, a war begun by Russia in terms of their aggression uh, against a sovereign independent state next door, uh, uh, despite the fact that that war is going badly wrong for Russia, uh, further escalation is not acceptable. Then at the Security Council itself, Kovri went pretty studs up on Russia. This week, President Putin again issues threats to use nuclear weapons. Let us be absolutely clear. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the antithesis of the principles of the UN Charter. It is a grave violation of international law it's an attempt to change internationally recognized borders by use of force. And no sham referendums can change that basic fact. It cannot be allowed to stand. If we, failed, if we fail to hold Russia accountable, we send a signal to large, powerful countries that they can prey on their neighbors with impunity, which is something that every nation on earth 
should take note of. You can hear the sirens there behind me. That's another uh, motorcade, a cavalcade going by. Must be a pretty senior politician because there's sort of five or six SUVs and then a number of police outriders. You kind of get to know fairly quickly whether it's one of the big beasts or not by how much, how many cops there are around, whether they've closed off the road or not. And you sort of kind of guess. You're like, oh, all right, that's, that's six SUVs. Maybe that's a Germany. Maybe that's a France. It's not quite a, a US, but a lot more than Ireland would have, for example. Um, back to the Security Council. It was a really interesting meeting because the Security Council, the way it works is that all the foreign ministers don't actually meet every single time the council meets. They often send lower level diplomats or people who are permanent representatives to the UN, for example. But this time was the first time since the war in Ukraine started that 14 of the 15 foreign ministers were there, including the foreign ministers of all the permanent five and the foreign minister of Ukraine, which meant that Sergei Lavrov, you know, Russia's lapdog foreign minister, was there for the castigation or was certainly meant to be there for the castigation that all the other uh, foreign ministers were giving him now we'll talk about that a bit more in a second but he did get a, a tongue lashing from everyone including Simon Coveney but then also including the United States through their Secretary of State Anthony Blinken this from a country that in January of this year in this place joined other permanent members of the Security Council in signing a statement affirming that and I quote nuclear war can never be won and must never be fought. Yet another example of how Russia violates the commitments it's made before this body. And yet another reason why nobody should take Russia at its word today. One man chose this war, one man can end it. Because if Russia stops fighting, the war ends. If Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine ends. The U.S. response, though, has been a bit more nuanced this week. They want to particular play down the nuclear element of all this. Lots of countries saying that, look, Russia has signed up to many agreements on nuclear weapons in the past. There's no winner in a nuclear war, and we really need to avoid that at all costs. So let's, let's take a bit of a step back. I thought the position of China on the Security Council was quite interesting because its foreign minister stressed the territorial independence of all countries is really important to them, but then also said that any investigation of war crimes needs to come without a presumption of guilt going into it. But China is very clearly uncomfortable with the war in Ukraine, despite being seen as you know quite close to, to Russia, maybe an ally of Russia in the past. And it made Sergei Lavrov look pretty isolated when he gave his speech. He, I said he was meant to get a tongue lashing for everyone. He didn't show up for any of the other speeches. He literally came in, gave his address and left, which is very unusual in the format of the Security Council. And the speech was... Um, quite something. He basically accused Simon Coveney of lying about seeing mass graves in Ukraine and said that Ukraine has become effectively a Nazi state. We have no doubt that Ukraine has become a completely totalitarian Nazi-like state where uh, the norms of international humanitarian law are trampled on. There's no surprise that the armed forces and the national battalions are using the tactic of terrorists, using uh, using uh, peaceful civilians as human shield. And here, what's particularly cynical is the position of states that are pumping Ukraine full of weapons and training uh, their soldiers. The goal is obvious. They, they're clearly stating it to drag out the fighting as long as possible in spite of the victims and destruction in order to wear down and weaken Russia. That 
policy uh, means the direct involvement of the West in the conflict and makes them a party to the conflict. The reaction of diplomats in other countries was just one of shock, really, to that. Some I spoke to said that it was remarkable to see Russia coming in and just lying straight up lying for 20 minutes before doing a sort of mic drop and leaving and afterwards Tishik Michal Martin said Russia's future on the council in his opinion is now in doubt I believe it is most fundamentally uh, that a, a member of the Security Council with veto powers can wage uh, such an unjust war which is in flagrant violation of the fundamental charter of the United Nations it does call in my view Russia's membership of the Security Council into question. But there, of course, we get into problems for the UN. As I mentioned, Russia has a veto over everything and anything the Security Council does, including any reform. So even with the US now coming around to the idea that something has to change with the veto and change with the membership, it's not going to happen because Russia's just going to block it. And I think that's where I'm left somewhat disappointed after this week, after seeing the UN up close. Like, it does do some fantastic work. There are successes that Ireland can claim on the Security Council from, you know, keeping open humanitarian corridors to Syria, the restocking of fund to fight malaria and TB, which I think Ireland put 65 million euro into this week. Again, no joke of an amount of money and hundreds of millions from the, the UN as a whole. But especially when it comes to Russia, it's been a bit of a talking shop. Like, I doubt anything that's happened this week is going to change anything Vladimir Putin was planning to do one bit. Vladimir Zelensky, as I mentioned, addressed the UN during the week. He made another call for arms, for weapons, for help. And while the West has provided that to a certain extent and to a large extent to allow them to fight the war, Ukraine still faces a really bleak winter and an escalating war with no end in sight. And it just leaves me wondering, with all the most powerful or almost all the most powerful politicians in the world here this week in one place, how much did they actually achieve? Assuming there are no more burn strikes on planes like there was to stop the Taoiseach getting out on time this week, I will be back in Ireland to chat to you next week with another edition of Let Me Explain. So signing off from New York from this special edition, thanks for listening.